Noah's Ark is one of those Bible stories that shows up frequently in children's literature, little children's books, children's storybook Bibles and so forth. And it usually features pictures of the smiling couple, Noah and his wife, with cute little drawings of uh, smiling giraffes and elephants, maybe a pair of ostriches, lions, and a rainbow. The setting is usually very peaceful and bright and sunny. It's even been a popular theme to use in decorating children's nurseries. But usually what is missing from the kids' books and from the nursery wall are the thousands of people in terror who are drowning outside of the boat. People in terror as floodwaters are rapidly rising over houses and hills. Now, understandably, most mothers would not in their right minds want their babies sleeping in a room like that. But when you reread the biblical account, as we've done this morning, it's striking. Uh, You're confronted with the horror of this story. The wickedness and corruption of man that permeated the earth. Uh, that resulted in great violence throughout the earth and the weightiness of God's judgment. This is a story about judgment. I have determined to make an end to all flesh, the Lord says. But we know that this is also a story about a great salvation. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God promises to establish his covenant with Noah and vows to save him and his family through this great flood. Though God is bringing judgment on the ancient world, he intends to have a new creation. And Noah is going to be his new Adam. God had not forgotten his promise to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman uh, would crush the head of the serpent. The Lord intends to have a people for himself. The seed line must continue until this promise is fulfilled. And so the Lord calls Noah to be his new Adam in this new world that he is bringing about through judgment. This new Adam theme is made explicit in Genesis chapter 9 when we're told that God blessed Noah and his sons the same way that he blessed Adam and Eve. He commands them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Just as he told Adam that all the trees were given to him as food, so God tells Noah, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So Noah is the new Adam who's delivered from an old world that is under judgment. And he's brought, along with his household, into a new creation. The flood is both a judgment on sinful humanity and the floodwaters are a means of salvation for humanity. The Lord saves the human race from itself by condemning the wicked in the flood and saving the righteous by making a covenant with Noah and starting anew. We might say that the whole world needed to be born again. Sinful flesh was drowned in the flood and a new man was brought safely 
through along with his household. Here in our sermon text in 1 Peter 3, Peter brings up Noah and the flood to talk about what Christ has done and will do for us. There are admittedly some great mysteries in this passage, uh, specifically what uh, Peter intended to communicate by saying that Christ went and preached to spirits in prison. All of that seems very mysterious to us. And it's a text that's been highly debated throughout church history. Even Martin Luther, who's usually quite dogmatic uh, and confident about his views, uh, he said this, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. Hey, even Luther, who's not known for his humility, remained humble in his conclusions about this text. Whenever we approach a text of scripture like this that seems unclear or is difficult to us, it's best for us to focus on the aspects that are clear first. Okay, it's best for us to compare the unclear parts of scripture with the clear parts of scripture. And I'd say the main point of this passage is very clear. And that's where we're gonna spend most of our time uh, this morning although I do intend to come back and address the spirits in prison at the end. But where we land on uh, how to understand that more mysterious part of this passage, I think has relatively little effect on our understanding of the passage as a whole. So let's, uh, let's look at 1 Peter 3 here. And, and I'd like to start by recapping where we are in the letter to get a sense of what Peter's doing with this set of verses. Remember, Peter's been encouraging these Christians who are in Asia Minor to do good even when they are being persecuted, okay? to do good even though they're being persecuted for righteousness sake. And these Christians are likely uh, Jewish exiles as we've talked about who uh, have had to leave Jerusalem and are now in Asia Minor living among uh, pagans. They've been scattered out of the land um, and uh, as a result of these Jewish leaders who were persecuting them. And now they even have pagans among them who revile them for their behavior, who seek to persecute them. And Peter's assuring these Christians that they will receive a blessing when they suffer for righteousness sake. He's encouraging them to continue to be who God says they are. He's reminded them of their identity, their true identity in Christ. And the promise of this blessing when they suffer. They're not to fear or to be troubled by those who are persecuting them. Rather, they're to sanctify, or he says to set apart Christ the Lord in their hearts and continue to bear witness to Christ and do good in the roles that God has given them to do. And they're to recognize that the Lord is sovereign over all of this. Okay, the Lord is testing their faith. He's purifying them uh, in their faith through these trials. He's using these circumstances to purify them. And now he turns to work out the rationale for his claim that it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And this is the reason, this passage is the reason that he gives. Uh, it's Christ's own suffering while doing good. So he says, it's better to suffer for, uh, for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For, or because... Christ 
also suffered for once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Then he goes on to say, Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Okay, Peter's saying, look at Christ's example. Look at the outcome of Christ's life. This is how he grounds the claim that it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Christ, the preeminently righteous one, suffered while doing good, and God vindicated him by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand and subjecting all angels, authorities, and powers to him. God blessed Christ by glorifying him and delivering him, by giving him praise and glory and honor. Christ's unjust suffering was not a defeat, but a victory. That's Peter's rationale for why it's better to suffer for doing good. Peter's already held up uh, Christ as an example for us in our suffering. If you remember back in chapter 2, uh, when he was encouraging slaves to entrust themselves to the Lord, even though they're suffering at the hands of their masters. They're to continue to do good and to endure. He says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he, reviled, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. But he suffered. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Okay, there in chapter 2, Peter is uh, displaying Christ as the example for us to follow when we suffer injustice. He's the supreme example of the innocent man who endures mistreatment. And now here in chapter 3, he's holding up Christ again as an example of the one who suffers for doing good and expects God to vindicate him. Christ walks the path before us, and then we are to follow him in his steps, Peter says. We're to follow him down that path, the path of suffering that leads unto glory. And just as Christ expected God to judge him justly and to vindicate him, to vindicate his life, so we who are united to him in baptism should expect the same. Okay, how can we expect that? How can we expect God to vindicate us? In both of these sections, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, Peter does not only focus on Christ's example. Uh, In a very important sense, we are not just like Christ. We all know that. We're not just like Jesus. We can't demand our vindication in the same way. Uh, Like our enemies, we too have acted unjustly. We have done evil to others. We have sinned against God. In this way, we are not like Christ, who, we're told, committed no sin, who was without sin, the pure and spotless Lamb of God, without blemish. And this is why in in both of these sections, Peter highlights the unique aspect of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf. His life and death are not merely an example for us, but they are the very means 
by which we are able to follow Christ's example. Okay, they're the means by which we can claim this vindication. Here's what I mean. On our own, we cannot rightly expect God to judge us as sinless. We cannot expect God to vindicate us, to declare us to be in the right, because we're not. On our own, we are enemies of God, sinners who have broken His holy law. We have broken fellowship with God and declared war against Him. On our own, we are not in the right. Both chapter 2 and 3 show us how Christ's death deals with that problem, how the unique aspect of His death deals with that problem. Peter says, Christ suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Okay, we are the unrighteous in this scenario. We are the enemies who caused Christ to suffer while he was doing good. It is for our sins that he goes to the cross to make atonement. Even though Peter's holding up Christ as the example for us to follow so that we might continue doing good even while uh, we have enemies that are causing us to suffer, He wants us to remember that we too were once enemies of Christ, causing Him to suffer. We once played the role of the enemy persecuting the righteous one who is doing good on our behalf. Christ's death is for our sins, not His. It is substitutionary. He stands in our place. He is the spotless lamb who dies in our stead. The righteous one for the unrighteous ones. And he does this, Peter says, so that he might bring us to God. Christ gives us access to God's presence, full fellowship with the Father. He makes peace between us and God. We are no longer enemies of God, but he now calls us friends. Christ opens the new and living way, as Hebrews puts it, so that we may draw near to God. So salvation is all about restoring communion with God. The goal of our salvation is not escape or heaven or getting out of hell or some other secondary benefit. Primarily, the goal of our salvation is to bring us back into fellowship with God. And that is what Christ's death makes possible. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Okay, unlike the Old Covenant offerings, Christ's sacrifice is made once for all, Peter says. This sacrifice is made once for all. Peter says, Christ suffered once for sins. He is the pure sacrificial lamb who is offered once and for all. As Hebrews 10 puts it, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And then he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 9 and 10 are all about the superiority of Christ's blood and his self-sacrifice over and above the old covenant rites. There's a lot of overlap in this section of 1 Peter 3 with Hebrews 9 and 10. I'd encourage you to go back and read those two chapters when you get home this afternoon Uh, Very fascinating insights that we won't be able to explore fully. Uh, But it's all about how the old covenant rites were pointing forward to the new covenant and how Jesus fulfills all of these rites. Okay, so he says in Hebrews 9 that Christ has appeared 
once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. All of those old covenant rites were shadows, Hebrews says, shadows of the good things to come. With Christ's sacrifice, we are granted full forgiveness and full assurance to draw near to God. Because Christ took our place on the cross, we are now bold to enter God's presence in the holy places. Peter says, Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, or by the Spirit. Now, this passage here, if we don't have our whole Bible lenses on, might be easy to take just very simply or straightforwardly as talking about Jesus' body. Okay, he's physically died and now maybe his spirit or soul is being made alive apart from the body. And some interpreters have taken uh, that passage this way. Now, we certainly want to affirm that Jesus did die in his physical body. Scripture is very clear about that. Uh, there's no question there. But I think Peter's making a, a very for, profound point, again, that fits with Hebrews 9 and 10. Uh, he's making a very specific point here about the death and resurrection of Christ. And you'll see how I think this fits better with the context of this section. Specifically this, that Christ's death and resurrection brings about a new creation. Okay, Jesus died in the flesh and was made alive by the Spirit. Okay, just as God brought about a new world through uh, his judgment in Noah's flood, so through the death and resurrection of Christ does he bring about a new creation. I think Peter's already anticipating where he's going with the Noah reference here. What do I mean by that? Okay, to understand this, we need to know what Peter means by flesh here. What does he mean by Jesus dying in the flesh or in flesh? Flesh in the Bible carries uh, often a more specialized meaning than just physical body. When Paul makes a contrast in his letters between the flesh and the spirit, he's not primarily talking about your physical body versus something immaterial. He's talking about something closer to earthly and heavenly, or better yet, old creation and new creation. Flesh represents what we might call humanity 1.0. Adam was created as flesh, and that was originally very good. Flesh is limited and weak. It's the first iteration of humanity. But when sin entered the world, flesh was corrupted. Okay, flesh became uh, hijacked by sin. And this is why we see in a, lo- in a lot of the passages in the New Testament that talk about flesh, there's a very negative uh, sense in which Paul uses it. Uh, flesh becomes hostile to God after the fall. In the flood, we're told that God destroyed all flesh. He intended to destroy all flesh. But he saved Noah and his family. Though Noah and his family were delivered, they were still flesh. Okay, I said that the world was being born again, but we still had humans from prior to the flood who were in covenant with God and had his favor being carried forward into this new world. And we we know from the account of Noah's sons that Uh, sin wasn't uh, brought out of the equation. They still continued in flesh and were still subject to sin. Okay, but that's why Peter goes on to say that Noah's deliverance 
It was a salvation, but he says it was a type. It was a type of this greater salvation that was yet to come in Christ. A few hundred years after the flood, God makes a covenant with Abraham. That includes a circumcision of the flesh. Okay, a circumcision of the flesh, a cutting off of the flesh. And this also pointed forward to the event where God would condemn all sin in the flesh by sending Christ in the likeness of sinful flesh to die in the flesh. Colossians 2 tells us just that, that Christ's death on the cross is his being cut off. It's the circumcision of Christ, Paul says in Colossians 2. And he's arguing that those who are united with Jesus in baptism do not need to receive the physical sign of circumcision because Christ has accomplished the thing to which circumcision was pointing. Circumcision was always pointing forward to this cutting off of the flesh that would happen in Jesus' death. The Word became flesh, and He dealt with sinful flesh at the cross. So when Peter says Christ died in the flesh, he means that Christ took on all the condemnation that we deserve in Adam, and He put it to death. He put old humanity under the flesh to death. Humanity 1.0, so that he might bring forth a new humanity, a new creation. So what does it mean when he says he was made alive by the Spirit or in the Spirit? Spirit here, I think, should be capitalized. So you remember that all the uh, Greek New Testament originals were written in all capital letters. Uh, So we don't actually know outside of interpretation which letters should be capitalized. We have, those are matters of interpretation when we're translating uh, words as capital or, or lowercase. Uh, I think this is one of those cases where Peter's referring to the Spirit, capital S. Okay, he's talking about Christ's resurrection from the dead by the Holy Spirit. The New, the New Testament teaches in numerous places that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead. And Christ received a new spiritual body. Now, we could confuse things here by saying spiritual. Again, if we're going into this uh, way of thinking that's physical versus uh, immaterial. But that's that's not the way that the New Testament uses spiritual. When when Paul says a spiritual body, he's not talking about something non-physical. We know Jesus ate fish. He showed the places, the wounds uh, in his hands, and he clearly has a physical body, but he has something more uh, than that original body, and we'll explore that here in just a moment. Uh, If anything, we could say that humanity 2.0 is more physical, it's more real than the old body of the flesh. Christ put off the old man of the flesh and put on the new man of the spirit. He is the first fruits of the new humanity. He's the resurrection that occurs in the middle of history uh, that we look forward to having a body like his. Listen to Paul's argument along these lines in 1 Corinthians 15. I think this is the argument that Paul's making here. He's talking about what kind of bodies get raised in the resurrection. What kind of body does Christ have? What kind of bodies will you and I have in the resurrection? And he gives a series of illustrations of different kinds of seeds that are sown into the ground and what they become when they're harvested, after they're raised. This is what he says, 1 Corinthians 15, 
So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy, the second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You see this contrast Paul's making between humanity 1.0 and humanity 2.0. I think that's what Peter's getting at here. Jesus dies in the flesh, and he's raised by means of the Spirit to this spiritual body. And the point is this, that Jesus' death in the flesh and his being raised by the Spirit is the movement from old creation to new creation. That's how it connects with Noah. That's how it connects with the old world being drowned in the flood and the new world being brought forth. Jesus himself goes from humanity 1.0 to humanity 2.0. And he is then able to enter into heaven. And to sit at the right hand of God. Jesus brings glorified humanity into heaven, into God's presence. Peter is saying Jesus did this for you, for us, so that we might be brought into God's presence with him. That we might be brought to God. We who are united with Christ in baptism can expect to be raised with him in a resurrection like his. We will have bodies like his. We too will be resurrected to humanity 2.0. This is Paul's argument in Romans 6. We've been buried with Christ in baptism. Our old self, our old man was drowned in the floodwaters of baptism. And now we can walk in newness of life since we are united to Christ. We are free from the power of sin. Our union with him in baptism also means that we look forward in hope to a resurrection like his. Okay, our old self is dead. We count that life as done. It's over. We now are united with Christ who's in heaven. Paul says we have new life here and now. We have resurrection life by means of the spirit here and now. And then we look forward to our glorified future state where we will be raised like Jesus with a resurrection body. That's the movement. Understanding this helps us make sense of why Peter moves on to a discussion about Noah and the flood. He's already thinking in these kind of old creation, new creation categories. Now we're going to skip over the spirits in prison here briefly, and I plan to come back uh, very briefly at the end to discuss that. Uh, But let's look at verse 19. Peter says, in which... So after being made alive in the spirit, he says, in which or during which time he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey 
when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven. Peter here calls to mind the salvation through water that Noah and his family experienced and says this was a type that corresponded to baptism. He actually says baptism is the anti-type to which the flood pointed to. God's rescue of Noah through water is a picture of God's rescue for you in baptism. How does this work? Many people want to explain away uh, this verse because it makes, it makes us uncomfortable to say baptism saves you. Baptism saves you. But that's what Peter says. He says baptism saves you. And whatever he means when he qualifies this phrase, he can't mean, well, actually it doesn't save you. Okay, that's how some people read this is baptism saves you, but actually it's, baptism doesn't save you. Um, they try to explain it this way because he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. And people say, see, he's not talking about water baptism, because he's saying, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Uh, So he can't be talking about baptism. He must be talking about something else. No, Peter says, baptism saves you. What does he mean by not as a removal of dirt from the body? Well, first, no one would have expected removal of dirt from the body to save you. So that's not really an argument against anything that anybody, any position that anybody would hold. Um, Peter's not heading off that line of thinking. I think the phrase is better translated this way. Again, we're thinking in terms of old creation, new creation. Old covenant, new covenant. I talked about Hebrews 9 and 10 in the background. I think Peter and the writer of Hebrews are thinking about the same kinds of things. A lot of overlaps there. Uh, so, So what does he mean by this. I think if we translate it this way, it becomes clear. First off, Peter doesn't mention the body. He mentions the flesh. Okay? He says, not as a removal or putting off of the uncleanness of the flesh or the filthiness of the flesh. Okay, if we start talking about uncleanness of the flesh, now we have some old covenant categories to think in. Peter's using the word flesh here again. Again, I think he's making a point about the movement from the old covenant to the new covenant, from the old creation to the new creation. Peter's saying Christian baptism is not like the baptisms or washings of the old covenant that had to be offered repeatedly. Okay, remember the book of Leviticus? I know you all get through your reading plan, and when we get to Leviticus, that's usually where people start to drop off. But if you press on through Leviticus, there's a lot there about baptisms, about washings. There's all these instructions for priests and for just ordinary Israelites. Uh, All kinds of ordinary circumstances that would cause one to be ceremonially unclean. They have to wash themselves, to baptize themselves, to deal with the ceremonial uncleanness. Israelites had to bathe their flesh, bathe their flesh in the water in various circumstances in order to draw near for worship at the tabernacle or at the temple. So like the sacrificial system, all of this was a temporary arrangement that God set up that had limitations. There was frequent washings, frequent offerings, and these things were a good temporary setup, but they didn't deal with 
uh, the root issue. They didn't deal with things completely. Listen to what Hebrews 9 says about this. It says, Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Okay, Hebrews mentions conscience here. Those things cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food, drink, and various baptisms, various washings, regulations for the flesh imposed until the time of reformation. All right, if you're tracking with me here, just as they repeated sacrificial offerings were put in place for a time until Christ came to make the one-time sacrifice, so the washings of the old covenant and even the flood were pointing forward to the one-time washing in Christian baptism that sprinkles our hearts clean and gives us full assurance. Okay, Christ's death and resurrection makes a way for us to be brought near to God in full assurance. And Peter's saying Christian baptism is our appeal to God from a good conscience because we've been washed clean. There's only one baptism because it's a baptism into Christ. What are we appealing to God to do? How is this an appeal? Well, it's an appeal to make us victorious over our enemies. Okay, he doesn't say baptism saved you past tense. He says baptism saves you. This is an ongoing appeal. The one-time baptism is an ongoing appeal to God to rescue us, to vindicate us, to bring about the same outcome for us as God did for Christ, to raise us to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, to seat us with Christ above angels, authorities, and powers. In baptism, we are united to Jesus in his death so that our old self is judged and drowned, condemned in Jesus' death on the cross. And because we are united with Christ, we are raised with him. We're given new life and we're given the hope of the resurrection. Now our true selves are seated with Christ at God's right hand in heaven. Now, this is all very much a mystery, right? We don't see this with our eyes. But the point is that you belong to Christ, and he is your true identity by virtue of your baptism, okay? Your baptism is that continual appeal for God to rescue you, to deliver you. All right, I said we would return to the spirits in prison, and we'll do that briefly here. What's going on there? What is Peter talking about with these spirits in prison? He says that Jesus was made alive in the spirit in which, or we could translate it as during which time, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Very strange phrase there. Where did Christ go? Uh, when did he go there? What was he doing when he was preaching? And who are these spirits in prison? These are the questions that come to mind when we read this passage. And these are the questions that will help us answer what's going on. So what I'd like to do is kind of give you three major views on how to read this. These are three kind of orthodox Bible-believing interpreters hold to these views, all godly people on all sides. Um, but these are three ways of interpreting this particular text. Okay, the first way, Christ went to the place of the dead in his spirit before his resurrection to proclaim victory over 
evil. Okay, this is uh, called the descent view. Okay, there are lots of passages in the, in the New Testament that we could point to that support what we say in the creed about Christ descending to the dead or descending into hell. Some read this passage as supporting that. Uh, in this view, Christ in the spirit refers to Christ's soul descending into Sheol. Uh, in this view, spirits in prison refer to either fallen angels who disobeyed in Genesis 6 at the time of Noah, or it could refer to humans who disobeyed and uh, Christ is proclaiming victory over uh, wicked humans uh, who were condemned. But that's one view, the descent view. Another view, this is Augustine's view, was that Christ was preaching in the spirit during the time of Noah. Or we could say Noah, back when he was building the ark, was preaching in the spirit of Christ to people who were metaphorically imprisoned by their sin, or some say uh, people who later on became imprisoned as a result of their disobedience. So in this view, the timing of Christ's preaching does not occur during uh, Jesus' death or resurrection or after. It's looking back at when the Spirit of Christ empowered Noah to preach during Noah's own time. That's the second view. The third view, and I tend to like some version of this third view, um, although I'm not dogmatic, again, uh, this is a difficult passage. Uh, I could be persuaded other ways, so we want to have some kind of humility about uh, how we hold these. But the third view says, Christ was raised from the dead by the Spirit. Okay, So the made alive there is referring to his resurrection, as I've argued uh, just earlier. And in his ascension, or either just before his ascension, he pronounces victory over demons who were in prison since the time of Noah. Okay, So Christ... Uh, proclaims victory after his resurrection over demons. The spirit in prison, there are the demons who have disobeyed uh, God. And this fits with uh, the end of the passage here that focuses on Christ's victory and authority over angels, authorities, and powers. Whichever view that you take, and they all have strengths and weaknesses, there are a few things that we can rule out here. Okay? Christ preaching to spirits in prison cannot mean evangelizing people after they died. Okay, it's not talking about evangelizing humans who died after the flood. Uh, that would contradict Hebrews 9, which says it's appointed to man to die once, and then comes the judgment. Okay, so we don't get a post-mortem, after-death opportunity for evangelism. Uh, that would go against all of the New Testament's urgency to repent and believe now while there is hope. Uh, even Peter's letter that wouldn't fit at all if he's talking about a um, post-death evangelism. Also, why would Jesus only evangelize those who died during Noah's time? That seems to be very specific um, and wouldn't fit with uh, yeah, evangelizing other people who died after Noah. Uh, the, the text does make clear that these spirits in prison were those who disobeyed during the time of Noah. Also, Peter uses a different word when he's talking about preaching the gospel in 1 Peter. Uh, this word here is a specific word that I think he's using to, to say something like proclamation or a public announcement, a declaration. So he's not evangelizing these spirits in prison. The point is that Christ is victorious over sin, over demons, and over evil. And that he has entered into heaven with his spiritual body, victorious. He has entered into heaven, into God's presence. 
Through his death on the cross in our place and his resurrection, we now have peace with God. Hebrews says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And Noah trusted God's word and he fearfully obeyed all that God told him to do. And 1 Peter assures us that God is going to bring us safely through the judgment. We are going to be heirs of righteousness by faith because we've been united to Jesus in baptism who's gone before us. Our baptisms are an appeal to God that we can hold with full confidence because of Jesus' resurrection. You can count on God to save you, to deliver you, because he has united you to Christ who died in the flesh, but was raised in the power of the Spirit and now rules over all. You have access to God, you have peace with God, the forgiveness of sins, and your baptism means that God will deliver you from your enemies, because Jesus has triumphed over sin, the flesh, death, and hell. Peter says that Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus entered into heaven, into God's presence with a spiritual body, humanity 2.0. Now we who are united to him have been brought to God. We have confidence and assurance that we have been fully forgiven. And we can also trust that we will be delivered and vindicated in the future. So whatever trials or troubles you are going through, Jesus has claimed you in your baptism. He will not leave you or forsake you. He's claimed you. He will see you through. Like Noah, Jesus brings his household with him. He brings the church safely through the waters of judgment. He will carry you through. With true faith by the Holy Spirit, Our baptisms become a saving flood where all sin in us, which has been inherited from Adam and which we have committed, is drowned and dies. In Jesus, we are brought safely through and given new life here and now. And we look forward in hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.